Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. My guest today is Tyler Nelson. Dr. Tyler Nelson is the owner of Camp 4 Human Performance. He has a dual doctorate and master's degree in exercise science with an emphasis on tendon loading and rehabilitation. And this episode is a deep dive into blood flow restriction training, or BFR for short, because if you're anything like me, you've seen it on the internet and wondered what the hell is going on in those crazy pictures and why people are strapping these things on their arms and making it look like their veins are going to explode. So that's what we covered in today's episode. We talked about what BFR is and where it came from. That story was very interesting. And the different use cases from rehabbing injuries to using BFR for active recovery or even for strength training. And we covered some example protocols and a bunch of other gritty details about BFR. And Tyler did an excellent job of explaining everything. And I think I finally understand what BFR is. And I think you will too after this episode. We also talked about finger training, which is another specialty of Tyler's and why the many different hangboard protocols out there probably aren't as different as we tend to think. And he gave some helpful principles to stick to if you want to add some finger training to your own training. And I think some of the stuff he shared there is going to be helpful even if you've been hangboarding for a very long time. So lots of good stuff. We also talked about wiffle ball, donuts, guitar riffs, and tattoos. So all in all, it was a nice, well-rounded conversation. And I left in part of our sound check because I thought the wiffle ball thing was really funny. So you'll hear us start with that, and I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, I bring you Dr. Tyler Nelson. Like we do it. Uh, go ahead and speak some more. How was your morning? Uh, so far, so good. Brought my little boy Luke with me to work today. So we went and got donuts. I went over to the Grasshopper Climbing Space to check out the space for the conference. And oh, that's so cool. far, so good. Oh. Nice. Tell me more about that. Are you, uh, that's Boone Speed's thing? The Grasshopper thing? Yeah, yeah. They have a space that's really close to my office. Um, and so I'm doing a course in July, end of July, 1st of August, with 15 participants. And I'm flying in two other coaches from out of state to help me, um, coaches that have worked with my clients before. And we're going to do a three-day seminar. Nice. Kind of like we did with, kind of like I did last year with you all, with Steve's thing in Lander. Okay. But a little bit different, a little bit more testing and more technical coaching which is gabe's thing and then mobility assessment stuff which is colin's thing okay so yeah should be pretty fun but i need i don't have i can't do it at my facility because my wall i have one wall and their pusher or i'm sorry grasshopper has geez they have four adjustable boards that we can use for timing and testing and then plenty of extra space for you know, doing any sort of lifting training, and we're gonna do some wiffle ball and nerf, nerf uh, competitions. <laughs> Definitely doing some wiffle ball. Colin, Colin as well as a college baseball player like me, and so he's all about the the wiffle ball life. So we're gonna have some wiffle ball. Con- <laughs> <laughs> 
That sounds like a blast. I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, it should be fun. It should be pretty sweet. There's like, it was pretty cool. There's like, you know, I haven't taught in person for a couple of years with the exception of that one event in Lander. So it's pretty fun to have a, another in-person one, but it's sold out in like 10 days or something. Oh, wow. So I'll probably do another one. Maybe I might even do it in September on the East Coast. There's another gym that wants me to do one out there. So we'll see. Okay. Man, that's what I've been missing from my climbing life is uh, not enough wiffle ball for sure. Dude, everyone <laughs> needs more wiffle ball in their climbing for sure. It's like that hand-eye coordination. <laughs> like I grew up my whole childhood playing so much wiffle ball. It's absurd. But And so did Colin, right? And it's like those balls are fun because you can get adults. You can throw wiffle balls at adults and you can like throw all these nasty pitches, you know, that – Wiffle balls do all sorts of weird things because they're not symmetric. They have holes on one side, so they're easy to spin. Mm. <laughs> Throwing nasty curveballs without any curveball experience. Nasty curveball. I mean, it's a good way to hurt your shoulder, yeah. probably. If you're if you're throwing really hard and you're not used to throwing or you're not used to spinning a, a <laughs> wiffle ball. <laughs> but I got skills, and so does Colin, so it'll be fun. <laughs> so we'll probably pitch for people and let people try and hit up, off our <laughs> That is hilarious. <laughs> okay, well, we just kind of did the soft roll-in, which I'm always a, a fan of. But um, do you have a, like a time cutoff today? Oh no, I booked off an hour and a half, so we're good whenever we can. Okay. I have another, I think my next client is at like, and that gives me a buffer too. I have, I have plenty of time. Okay. I have technically till one. Awesome. Um, well, I've been recording, like I said, and I'm, I'm ready to go. You feel good? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Right Fine. On, whenever. I don't know how structured you are with these or. Yeah, I have I have an outline here. Um, oh, cool. I have a couple primary topics I want to deep dive into, but we'll let it flow as well, and we can let it kind of go where it wants to go. But I'll kind of preface like what I have in mind for the conversation, and then we can backtrack and do a little bit more of an intro on on your background. Uh, you've done a lot of these. I, n- I know that people that listen to this that have that are into the geeky training episodes will have likely listen to you on other podcasts. I know you've been on training beta a number of times, so they'll probably be familiar with you, but, um, but yeah, it'd be good to hear more of your backstory. And I'd like to hear a little bit about your background and how climbing came in. Cause it sounds like you had a lot of the knowledge of the physiology and the tendon structures and all that sort of stuff before climbing and climbing has kind of come into the picture, uh, later, you know, you're talking about playing baseball growing up, but my idea for today, I was actually having a conversation with Mercedes Palmeyer recently, and she had just come back from a bouldering trip. And the start of our conversation was her describing this BFR training that she was doing as like a recovery protocol from her trip. And I, we mentioned you, you know, that's that's who she learned this stuff from. And I thought it'd be really fun to just do a total deep dive into BFR training because I'm familiar with it. I've seen some of your videos on Instagram. I've kind of you know, I'm aware that it's a thing that people are starting to do, but I think my knee-jerk reaction when I see people strap on those cuffs and, you know, squeeze the blood out of their arms is just like, that looks freaky and it looks overly complicated and I'm I'm just not even going to go there. You know, it seems like, I don't know if I thought it was gimmicky or what, but um, but I've become a lot more interested in it. It seems like it's, you know, I talked to Jonathan Segrist about it. it. Sounds like he used it when he was recovering from his shoulder to maintain strength and help his recovery. So I think for this conversation, it'd be really fun to kind of get an overview of 
the different, I guess, modalities that BFR is useful for, for recovering from injury, it sounds like it's also being used for strength training specifically. Um, and we can just kind of, yeah, dive into a lot of different nooks and crannies with BFR training with that. But like I said, before we get into that, I think it'd be great to hear a little bit more about your background. And I was just reading about your bio this morning, and I didn't know that you were a second generation physician, that your father uh, was a leader in the sports chiropractic world in his career. Um, can you tell me about your dad and what he did in in his career? And, you know, I, I imagine that that was an obvious career path that was always right in front of you growing up. But I'm, I'm curious if you were always interested in that or um, if you had to kind of find your own love for for sports physiology and, and what you're doing now. But yeah, tell me about your dad yeah. and his career. Yeah, he's he's a awesome he's an awesome guy. He's just like one of those didn't have anything as a kid growing up and just like put his head down and made something for himself out of it kind of individuals you know, and was always smart and really athletic. And when he went to, to chiropractic school and got out, it was very like fringe healthcare. Like there was very few, I think when he started his practice in Salt Lake city, there was maybe a handful of people that were legally like represented as chiropractors that had licenses. So it was very like, you know, not under the radar, but very unknown. Right. And the, and so for him, he was very medically driven. And so he had a background in biology and math. And so he got very involved with medical doctors as well as like, you know, athletic trainers at sporting events. And like back in the day, essentially, he was able to develop his career because there was very few regulations on, you know, like going to a sporting event and being a physician and whether there's lots of loopholes that you have to jump through, you know, so he really made his career by going to rodeo events and cause who beats themselves up more than cowboys do. And so he would go and set up a table and see all these cowboys that are just like totally banged up and help them. Right. And try and find ways to help, you know, certainly in from a chiropractic sense, but he was certainly not one of those all in kind of, you know, chiropractic fixes everything type of individual. So he was very like on the, you know, medical side and the science side of it, but he would go and help people. Right. So he was really able to expand his business in that regard. And something that's kind of cool about him is he just had, he's one of those people that has like a personality that you just can't, you can't not like him. He like makes friends like so quickly, you know, he's, he's so personable and he was the first he was the first chiropractor in the in the country to be involved with a division one level athletics program. Oh wow. And so like, you know, at that point, like athletic trainers were in division one level programs. Medical doctors were not even nutritionists really at that time. Sometimes they were, but in big programs, yes, but in small programs, no. But he was able to like create enough of a social network that he got himself involved with uh, Brigham Young University and the University of Utah here in Utah. And then any like professional athletics like team in the States, like he like just got his way into. Right. And that's a mix of being personable, but certainly a mix of like, you know, being really knowledgeable and going outside of the general like what you learn as, as in school as a physician, you know, as a chiropractor to like expand you know your your knowledge base so it's pretty cool in that regard so yeah in terms of like his reach in that profession is pretty pretty big 
Yeah, that's so cool to hear that. I'm really curious what your exposure was to his world and his work as a kid. Because, you know, I'm my dad's a lawyer. Uh, he's retired now, but he was a lawyer. And I don't think it was until my 20s that I really even knew what he what he did for a career. I, I just wasn't that interested or I just didn't even think to ask. My dad just went to work every day and then he came home and then I got to hang out with my dad. But you know, in my 20s, I, I started asking questions. I'm like, oh, wow, that's okay. So that's what you were doing all those years at your desk. Uh, were you able to, to see what he was up to? Was it interesting to you as a kid or did that come in later? No, it was always like interesting and fun. You know, people would always come over to my house. Like, it's kind of like one of those things and maybe you've had this too as a, it was a love hate relationship kind of thing. Like he was always busy, you know? And so one of the criticisms that kids have with their parents is like, he's always got somewhat of an agenda almost like whenever we'd go somewhere, there always needed to be like, he was so social and so helpful for people that he was like helping random people right all the time. And you're like, like we're on a vacation, right? Stop doing that kind of thing. So it was kind of, kind of a mix of that, you know, but for example, we would have dinner at our house, like very commonly, and Steve Young would like come to dinner at our house or Chad <laughs> Lewis, who's, you know, those are both professional football players and everyone knows Steve Young, but like these professional athletes would come to our house all the time and just like hang out. So it was very cool in that sense that like, wow, everyone like knows this guy, right? Who's my dad and he does great things and people say awesome things about him. So in that regard, like when I was younger, I always wanted to be, you know, have people appreciate me as much as they did him. Cause mm. that was a really good example. Right. But, but there's always the down, you know, the downside of it is like, he's working all the time. And so there's always that kind of like challenge, obviously I'm sure that was for him as well. Um, but no, I did not ever like, you know, as a kid, you don't want to do what your parents do. Right. I, I could have had a really good opportunity had I got out of college and say, yes, this is what I want to do. Cause his business was outrageously busy and like, in the States. And I said, no. And I went to college to do other things. And then he sold his business. And so he sold his business. And then I moved and went to school or whatever and did my undergrad stuff. And then he actually moved to Missouri to be a teacher at a university at a chiropractic college in Missouri. And so he was the first person to start a master's degree program at a university that's like, you know, exercise science oriented. So chiropractors that are interested in sports, they could be trained to do sports medicine type stuff, right? Minus the medication or the injection stuff. <clears throat> and so he was the first person to start there. And so I ended up going there to train with him after, you know, many years of like trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Oh, wow. Which is kind of cool. That is cool. That's so interesting too. So what did you end up focusing on at the University of Missouri? You came out of that with a PhD and a master's, is that right? No, no, no. I have a, my chiropractic degree is just a, like a medical degree, right? Okay. Essentially like what's, what's, what's interesting for the general public is the, like, it could be argued that like the hardest part about medical school is getting into medical school, <laughs> but most people, when they get in, they just like, they're not going to get out. Right. Unless like for some dramatic circumstances, but for the most part, and I've had lots of friends that were going through at the same time as me, they like, you get in and you like, everyone goes through together and shuffles through. Um, and chiropractic school, it's easier to get in, but it's harder to get out because you'll fail. Like you can't, you don't just like go through the steps, right? Like people fail out all the time because mm. the actual curriculum is really hard. It's very similar in the first two years to a medical program. And in some instances, it's harder with some of like the neurology stuff where medical physicians, they don't focus on that until they're out of their 
actual school and then they go into a residency program where they really learn all that where chiropractic school they just like slam people with the education part and so and so the real difference really is like you know learning about pharmacology we don't learn a ton about pharmacology because that's not something chiropractors can do they can't prescribe medication or do like for the most part injections of medication and so we don't learn that we learn more hands-on things but the actual physiology part is very similar and so I, that degree was in a school called Logan, which is in uh, pl- close to Missouri. And then I did my master's degree at the same time. So those were just, since the curriculum was so overlapped with the physiology, it was just an extra course load, but it was like, it was intense. It was like 35 credit hours a semester for a couple of years, you know, like three semesters. So year round. Mm. And you, you know, we were joking about wiffle ball and you talked about playing baseball when you were younger. Um, am I right in, in thinking that climbing came into the picture later for you in the big scheme of things? Did you start climbing like in college or later in life? Yeah, I started climbing in college. I, I didn't know anyone that climbed with the exception of Aaron Shammy, who's like, was a really well-known like X games climber when I was a kid, because he was one of my dad's clients. He would come eat at our house. And he'd be like, you guys should check this kid out. And Aaron Shamu would come over and do like pull-ups with one finger. We're like, holy shit, like <laughs> people can do that? Wow. And so it was really cool. Like I would, I only knew Aaron Shamu, but I didn't know any other rock climbers. But I would always see them in the canyons when we drive by and be like, wow, what are those ants doing up on the wall? Like I would be good at that kind of stuff. Cause I was a wrestler as a kid and like, mm. that was like my best sport. And, but then it was, I got to college and decided I didn't want to play team sports anymore. And that was a whole nother challenging decision to make whatever and then i just met some friends that were into you know they were cool kids that took a Knowles course and i just like gravitated towards these kids and like it's, it's been about climbing ever since did it start with outdoor climbing or did you have a, a gym at your college how did you first dabble in climbing there was i lived in uh, i went the where i really got into it was in uh in gunnison colorado okay have you ever been there it's like I have, down yeah Canyon from crested butte it's very cool yeah western states is very cool and so they had, they did have a gym in there in the school at that time. It was like just a steep cave. And for a new climber, you're like steep cave. Oh shit. That's really intimidating. Like, I don't know if I can climb on that. So we would like go bouldering below Mount Crested Butte. It's actually some really cool boulders there. And I had no idea. I bought some shoes and <laughs> some chalk and started like climbing on the boulders as best I could. And just like totally got excited about it. You know, it's a mix of something new something athletic, something that I get to spend time outside with, you know? And so it definitely started more outside and then into like trad climbing. And was that directing your further education as you got into your master's and finished school? Did you already have it in mind that you were going to focus in on what you do now, I guess, essentially finger strength and tendons and, um, you know, were you studying things with the intention of applying it to climbing? Um, I mean, I knew that when I got out of school, I wanted to work with athletes because that's just something that's so familiar to me, you know, like playing three sports my whole life. Like all of my friends were athletes. Like that's pretty much all I knew. Right. Well, not all of my friends. I had friends also that like were non-athletes that were like played the guitar and were artists and stuff. And I always wanted to do what those kids did, but I never had time to, you know, which is like a whole different like puzzle of my life as a kid where I'm not trying I try not to be really pushy with my kids in that direction because I want them to like you know be able to choose and there's all sorts of conflicts of that you know how that actually works out to the, be the best for the kid but yeah so I really wanted to like 
work with athletes in general because that's what I'm familiar with. And certainly being able to work with climbers is a fantastic like option. But in school, you know, there's I did my like thesis on uh, tendinopathy. So specifically the patellar and the Achilles tendon, which are the most commonly studied because there's not that much research on finger tendons and finger tendons don't really get injured that often, but like not nearly as much research as patellar tendons and Achilles tendons. So that's kind of like where I, but for some, I don't know why I was interested in tendons. It just seems like something that wasn't taught very much and it's pretty new and not sure why, but I just kind of gravitated towards that as a topic. Okay. What is the patellar tendon? I'm familiar with the word. I know where the Achilles is, but where's the patellar tendon? The patellar tendon is the tendon that's down from the patella, which is the kneecap. So like, so if if you've heard of jumper's knee, so above the kneecap is the quadricep muscle group and the tendon, there's four muscles, five muscles that actually go around the patella. And then the quadricep or the patellar tendon is the tendon from the tip of the patella to the attachment on the tibia. So it's the right below the kneecap. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Um, I'd love to hear, this is such a fun intro because I've, like I said, I've heard you on a number of other podcasts, but this is all uh, new to me. Tell me a little bit about the evolution into what you do now, you know, getting, getting into, um, climbing and training and coaching. Uh, I guess I'm just curious, like what has been in broad strokes, like the evolution, uh, the, the path to where you're at now with camp for human performance, you know, what, what are some of the things you, that you started with focusing on? And I guess, what are some of the things that have become more interesting and have become focus points for you now with what you do? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, getting out of school, right. The, the thing that sucks, uh, quite frankly, about like going to chiropractic school is when you get out of school, you're like, what do you do? Right. Like you have to start your own business or work for another small business where compared to, so the one thing that medical school has going for it, that's so much better than chiropractic school is not that the education in chiropractic school is not good because it's fantastic, but what you do afterwards is really the differentiator where most medical doctors, they have the opportunity to do a residency and well, they'll do a residency, which is like, they learn how to do the job, right? They learn they on the job training from trained professionals, right? Where as a chiropractic student you get out of graduate school and you're like oh shit now what am i supposed to do hmm. you either work with someone that's really knowledgeable in a small business or you start your own business right and so like when i was out of school i worked with my dad we like you know he helped me like essentially get a business started but then it comes into like you know the old ways versus the newer ways and things to do and you know, like you know he's very biomechanically driven and when he was out of his school and into his life. That was like a very popular thing. And that was very like cutting edge where now the biomechanics evaluation kind of perspective is less, less supported. And it's more about the neuroscience and the neurology component. So there's like always that kind of dynamic change of what a business will look like. And I'm always been really interested in reading research papers and, you know, and I've never really bought into the whole idea that there's something like ethereal or special about doing spinal manipulation, right? Like it's just a thing that you can do and sure it maybe makes people feel good in the short term, but it's not like a, this big, like thing that you need all the time. Right. So that's never been like a big, big thing that I've ever thought was 
what I wanted to do. And it's really hard as a physician, as a chiropractic physician to have repeat customers, right? Like, like you have to have a business in order to have a business, you need repeat customers. And so the general like sales point or the general business model for a chiropractor is you need to like have people come regularly to get some sort of, you know, like uh, people use the analogy of like the oil change on your car. Right. Mm. I totally think that's bullshit. And like, is that service, can that service be useful? Sure. But it's a very small piece of a much larger picture, which is an athlete's profile and the stressors in their life and the exercises that they do. And so all of that I'm saying essentially because I'm all, I'm way more like driven towards the exercise science and the like physiology side. And so like my client and my business has always been catered around strength conditioning. Um, And so my clients essentially what I've really been interested in is like having them come in and like, I don't really need to do a big biomechanical evaluation on them. I don't think that's really that important, but I think it's important to measure things about them, like their muscular strength and their rate of force development, and then talk to them about their lifestyle and then actually, you know, educate them a lot about their pain complaint and why it might be there and give them all these different options and let them choose. Right. So it's kind of like, that's always been, you know, my, the framework under which I think is I can be the most helpful for people. And so that's kind of been the business model, but it's like, you know, it's hard to run a business and start a business without having to like have that, you know, and a lot of people have been to chiropractors are like, I'm not going, they're going to make me come all the time. Right. Hmm. And so that is like the general, like stigma around chiropractors is hard to break. Right. Because there's people that think that way, or they think they're weird and do only these weird things. Right. Where, yeah. So I don't know. That's, that's kind of been where it started. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool that, um, I think I have all those same stigmas and assumptions about chiropractic. I think of it as like this, like you, the, the oil change analogy resonates with me. I've thought of it as this quick fix that I would need to come back for to get almost like a band aid, you know, put on and, and taken back off and put on again or something like that. Whereas it seems like what you do is a lot more, I don't know if holistic is the right word, but you seem much more interested in like root cause and really setting up the athlete well to to move beyond this issue that they're coming to you with, not to just make them feel better in the short term and send them back out the door. So, yeah, that's, right. yeah, root, that's cool. Root cause is an interesting term too, right? Because people, and, and the other option is people think root cause is something mechanical, right? Mm. And when it comes to like long-term pain complaints, the mechanical... Uh, explanations are less validated in the science, right? Then it becomes more of a neurology thing and like a psychological thing. And so it's like understanding those things, you know, I'm kind of one of those people that get really obsessed with like topics that I'm interested in and will just like spend so much time like reading everything about them, you know? And so to the point where like, there's so many things you can do to help people, but the things that we actually physically do to the people are the least helpful, right? Which is why a lot of my business is now remote because I think I'm just as helpful to people by educating them and then giving them, you know, some sort of video like library, which I have for my clients on Instagram, like as options to do and then write them specific programs, but really spending time like developing those relationships with people and, like teaching them about like, you know, what, what the current ideas are about why we have these types of pain complaints. And that becomes really important with the tendon pathology because 
tendons don't respond quickly to mechanical load and they don't develop pathology quickly. And so it's not going to be some quick fix. And so even like, you know, you come in and you poke needles at people. And I used to do that when I was out of school, like these, these things that seem so unique and new and cutting edge for pain complaints, they're really not that helpful in the long term, you know, and mm. unless the individual buys into the idea that they need to make changes about their programming and their lifestyles and their sleeping habits. And like, those are the things that are more challenging to make, you know, for people to help themselves. Mm. Yeah. It's the whole, uh, teach a man to fish analogy comes to mind. Yeah, for sure. Um, on that note, but I mean, I, I do want to dive into our chosen topic for today, but on that note, I would love to hear what are the things that you find yourself repeating over and over and over again with your clients, as far as like the basic, simple lifestyle improvements, interventions, whatever else, you know, is it sleep? Is it nutrition? Is it, um, are there, are there key things that most people are missing? Like, what are the things that you really find yourself harping on that make a big difference for people? Uh, probably just more variation in what they do with their training. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think, I think as a general rule, people know that sleeping is really important and people know that they need to like eat good and they need to drink water. I think that's a pretty basic assumption, but the assumption that we can do the same thing for extended periods of time is not reasonable, especially when it comes to performance and when people are performing at their highest level is when they want to continue doing their performance at their highest level, but that's not sustainable. Mm. You know, no athlete can get away with performing at their peak year round all the times, you know, you get injured. And so, you know, and the other thing I tell people quite often is that having variation in what you're doing is I think in a lot of ways, really good where people get, you know, very fixated on one particular training methodology and they want to do that same thing all the time. But there's lots of different options. You know, the more you understand the physiology, you, the more you realize that all these things are pretty similar. They're only difference in their methods, but the actual like principles are the same. Like having variety is good for your body because it's just a different type of stressor. And, you know, any stressor at too high of a dosage is risky. So understanding more types of ways to stress your system, I think is really helpful. Mm. That's spent a lot of people, I spent a lot of time talking to people about that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So on that note, I'm curious, do you have people just very globally, generally speaking, do you encourage people to add more variety, like workout to workout week to week, or is it more like, you know, maybe do this program for a month or six weeks, but then make sure that you're rotating the, the programs or the the exercises that you're focusing on or whatever. Uh, does, does that matter? Is it just, you know, within a year, get some amount of variation? How do you think about that? Yeah, I would say when it comes to like finger training, as just an example, if someone has a finger pain complaint, I prefer doing more linear types of programs where they're, the loads are more predictable and the loads are more similar so they can use that response like 24 hours, 48 hours later as a proxy for how much of a stressor it is in either a good or a negative way for symptoms. And so, and that, that would be the one example, but for the general athlete, if you think about finger training, there's lots of finger training options out there. And the reality is, is they probably, it probably doesn't really matter which one you do, you know, cause they're all going to make your fingers stronger. Cause they're all, the intensity is all greater than the sport, you know, and 
what we do to make it harder is just make the edges smaller. But the actual time and the rest and all of those things, unless you're being very specific with an athlete and taking them like to failure on purpose, all the other types of repeater types things are, are probably do the same thing. Right. Hmm. And so the difference though, is like the, the stressor in a particular repetition, you know, and the dosage of those stressors, those are the things that really get people into trouble is how much of it they're doing, how much recovery they're getting between when they do it again. And, you know, but to, to think that we have to do one thing all the time, just it's not how our bodies respond. It's, it's not very, you know, um, adaptation promoting, I think, um, in the long term, that it would be having more variety because climbing has lots of variety. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I want to, if we have time at the end, I would love to circle back to that. And I have some more questions, you know, of, of course, I always have finger strength questions. That's an obsession of mine. <laughs> I know you've talked about it a lot. Um, but yeah, if we have time, I'd like to come back to a specific, a specific question really about like what we can do to keep our tendons healthy, you know, for, for us that are performance oriented and always trying to improve our finger strength. I'm curious if there's any major things that we're missing out on that, um, whether that's stretching our tendons to promote their health or whatever else, but yeah, I'll bookmark that for now. Let's dive into, uh, some blood flow restriction training. I would love to hear, I guess, just leading off, you know, like I said, I, um, I became interested in this after that conversation with Mercedes and I had a conversation last summer with Jonathan at that training camp. And I think he was working with you at the time on, you know, he had just wrecked on his mountain bike and screwed up his shoulder. And he was trying to, I think, just maintain his finger strength while recovering from the shoulder. I guess just an opening up, I'd love to hear how blood flow restriction fits into the bigger picture of what you work on with athletes. Like, is this something that you work on a lot? Is this is this just like a novel special tool that has a certain time or place, or is this a big component of your, of your modalities that you work on with your clients? How does it fit in globally speaking? And then I'd love to dig into the different use cases, you know, like using it to help someone get through an injury versus what Mercedes was doing, which is like short-term recovery versus how you might use it for strength training. Yeah. There's a couple, a couple things that we can talk about. Um, with its use, I would say in terms of how important it is for a program, I would say, you know, it's, it's never going to be a replacement for finger training or training in general. And most of the literature that's been published on BFR, which of which there's quite a bit. And so when it comes to like being something gimmicky, like I would say, you know, using tools like the flex bar is a thousand times more gimmicky than BFR, right? Because Mm. BFR man, in 2019 alone, there was over 900 peer-reviewed articles on blood flow restriction. So blood flow restriction is definitely not like just some random thing that, you know, people use, um, you know, just is a crazy idea. And so it's really well studied um, given, you know, compared to other exercise methodologies, but it's mostly been studied on people in a rehabilitation setting. And so like elderly people have been studied a lot because, elderly people don't have the muscle mass and or they don't have the bone density that allows them to lift really heavy loads. But blood flow restriction is a way that they can manipulate the metabolism or the body's, um, how the body utilizes its recruitment in a particular muscle group with a lower intensity. 
So, you know, elderly people have been studied a lot, people that are non-ambulatory. So that means they are, they're not walking and not because they can't walk. Maybe they had ACL reconstruction or they had a hip replacement or a knee replacement. So individuals that are bedridden also have been studied a lot in BFR. And that would include like people that are like um, astronauts where they have no gravitational load to their muscles to keep their muscles strong. So essentially it's like a, a methodology that was created by a Japanese individual and a Japanese athlete that, you know, understood that when he was sitting for a long period of time on his knees at a funeral, his legs got really pumped. Like they did when he was working out, he was, a, he was like a, a bodybuilder at the same time, I believe. Huh. Interesting. So he's like, what the hell? I'm just blocking my blood flow. My legs got pumped. And so he had the, you know, the knowledge to be like, I'm going to try and do that and see what happens if I block my blood flow and exercise. So that same person got uh, ACL. He had what's called the unhappy triad on his knee when he was skiing and he was put in a cast and he did this to himself during that period. And then after that period, he went back to his physician to get his cast smaller. And the surgeon's like, holy shit, what have you been doing? Your leg's not smaller. And so he's like, this is what I've been doing. And so that's the story, at least that I've been told or that I've heard from a couple of people about how BFR was created. So that's like, you know, the number one, probably um, sure, like a uh, helpful thing to do for people that can't load heavy. So if you think about a finger injury, if you have a full rupture in your pulley and you're not loading your finger for a period of time, doing BFR makes a lot of sense, you know, in, in that context for sure. Can you describe what that would look like? I've seen probably on Instagram what the cuffs look like. I don't even know why, but I'm familiar with what they look like. I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this have not seen that. Can you describe like what you would actually do, just what it would look like to, um, you know, to an observer that doesn't know any of the science or anything like that? And then I think it'd be fun to just <clears throat> hear kind of a layman's explanation of why it works, like what what's happening yeah, so it would look like putting a blood pressure cuff. If we're talking about like the arms with a pulley injury, you it would look like a blood pressure cuff, which is about the width of your phone, mm -hmm. you know, on your arm. And there's only, you know, one location that it would go and it would be below the deltoid and above the bicep muscle. And the arms are more dramatic than the legs when it comes to the objective, like appearance, right? Your arms are going to discolor, your veins are going to pop out. From the outside observer, they're like, this looks like a bad idea. Like, what are you doing to your system? This looks scary, right? It looks like all your veins are going to explode. It looks terrifying. Yeah, yeah. It looks like your veins are going to explode. When I teach BFR courses, I have a picture of the Ultimate Warrior. And I'm not sure how old you are, but the Ultimate Warrior was like big, big news when I was a kid, right? WWF. And he would tie his, he would tie small elastic bands around his arms in oh, that wow. location and on his elbow and on his legs to make his veins stick out. You know, and I'm sure they weren't tight, but the veins, all you have to do to, to pull the blood there is like cut off the, occlude them a little bit and then not contract, well, get really pumped and then put them on and your veins are going to pop out and make him look really tough, right? So like it looks scary in that regard. So essentially what you do is you inflate these, um, these cuffs to a per particular like intensity of pressure and there's lots of different products out there. Um, the ones that I use are designed by an individual uh, medical physician who's a cardiorespiratory physiology guy that works with the U.S. ski team. And he actually worked with the Japanese company that originated BFR 
And so he and another uh, individual, Sean's his name from California, the engineer, he, they developed a product that's flexible that, uh, cause there's a patent on a flexible system, which is the Katsu system, which is a single chambered system, which is just like an inner tube essentially. Cause the tricky thing with BFR, if you're putting a restriction on someone's arm and you're doing a muscle contraction, the, it's not designed if you're exercising to restrict the arterial blood flow, cause that would be dangerous. Mm. So what people think is happening is they think they're blocking all the blood flow to the arm, which is not what's happening with BFR. So the restriction part, you're restricting the blood flow. You're essentially slowing down the blood flow to a limb is a good way of describing it. Okay. And if you think about it from like a supply and demand issue, like you're exercising, I'm demanding oxygen to my muscles, but because I have this restriction, I'm slowing down the delivery. So I'm not able to supply as much, as I'm demanding. And as a consequence, my muscle fibers and my motor units start recruiting the larger ones that don't rely as much on oxygen. Sure, they use oxygen, but they don't exclusively use oxygen like the small muscle fibers have been shown to do or espoused to do. So that's like the, the simple way of thinking about using a lower intensity to get stronger because the strength is really a function of how many motor units you're recruiting with an exercise. So if I can restrict the, the oxygen delivery and increase the, the demand, then I'm going to naturally use the larger motor units. Got it. So if you're, if I were just lifting a heavy weight, normally the reason I would go higher intensity is because I would overwhelm the base number of my muscles and it would require my body to recruit more motor units and more muscles. And by restricting oxygen using BFR, we're tricking, kind of tricking ourselves into doing the same thing. So we're recruiting a higher percentage of our muscle fibers just because um, we're recruiting the ones that that don't require as much oxygen. Am I? Yeah. Is that is yeah. that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, the other thing that's that why it's useful to lift heavy weights, right? Is it's really productive on the hormonal release, you know, of your body for testosterone, growth hormone you know, endothelial growth factors, which are like things that are good for your blood vessels. And so a lot of the, you know, um, hormonal responses that we see with heavy resistance training, they also see with blood flow restriction training. Hmm. So if you have someone that's non-ambulatory, right, in bed after an ACL reconstruction, and we can still get a hormonal release and keep their muscle mass while they're laying in bed, like no athlete would not want that with their program. And so in terms of recovery time, you know, the growth hormone and the testosterone, all of those uh, anabolic types of hor hormones are really important for collagen synthesis and bone density and like, you know, making, keeping your muscles strong. So they, they see better turnaround times for athletes that, you know, utilize BFR quickly after injuries. And so when it comes to like finger injuries, acute pulley, like especially acute pulley ruptures, doing BFR is a really useful um, tool to do because those athletes, we're not going to have them loading their fingers necessarily for a period of time. You know, they can do a little bit of stuff, but they could do more general things for their upper body, but, you know, curling, extending the elbow, pulling, pressing, and get really fatigued and pumped. And they're going to get the benefits of the hormone as well. Mm. Okay. And is that, 
to, to what extent is that used to just maintain strength while injured versus actually helping repair the injury more quickly? Yeah, I don't know if there's good, like there's less science on tendon adaptation with BFR than there is with bone and muscle for sure. But clinically, there's good like case reports and stuff supporting that people respond much more quickly. And there's some pretty good evidence for um, the release of a hormone called alkaline phosphatase, which is good for bone density too. And so now within the last you know year or two, there's, they're spending more time looking at tendons. But up until that point, the science has mostly been on, is it safe to do? What happens to the muscles? Mm. Like am I going to get a blood clot if I do this? What about people that are on medication? So up until, you know, 20, probably 19, it was all about safety and what the hell is it? And now they're like, oh, there's enough science to support that. It's like legitimate and it's not risky. And so now they're looking further into those um, other pathologies, but certainly there's uh, evidence in a rehab context showing people that it makes people hurt less in some cases certainly makes people return to their sports more quickly because it's all about muscle mass. And if, you know, like the number one uh, upper extremity injury in the aging population is rotator cuff tears. And, and in the lower extremity, it's arthritis of the knee. And it's been suggested over for many years that muscle mass loss is the real culprit of those pathologies. Because as soon as people stop loading their muscles with higher intensities, that they can't, they're not, they're not producing the same or a symmetric load on their knee, or they're not producing the same or a symmetric load on their rotator cuff. And so, you know, as their muscle does not like, um, utilize more tendon, then they go do a dynamic thing and they get an abnormal load and they get a rotator cuff tear, you know, so keeping your muscle strong is incredibly valuable, um, for people that are injured and certainly for athletes in general. Okay, that's really interesting. I want to ask questions about how you would do this with a shoulder then. And Jonathan comes immediately to mind. Like I said, he had that mountain bike accident, tore his shoulder up. And, uh, you know, he had great success with BFR and it really helped him bounce back pretty quickly. But I'm curious, I mean, based on where the band goes, it can't go around your neck or shoulder, I, I imagine. So, What's happening there? Are you actually able to get benefits in the shoulder if you're using the cuffs around your upper arm like you described? Yeah, yeah. There are some, um, a couple studies that have been done on the pec, on the pec major, as well as the tricep and the glutes. Um, so back squatting and benching. And they still see an anabolic response because, hmm. you know, the thing about your your circulation, it's systemic, right? So it goes everywhere. So even things, muscle groups that are proximal, which means they're closer to midline than the restrictive stimulus, they still see strength improvements and increases in EMG activity with the exercise. And again, the hormonal response to your body is systemic. Like those hormones mm. get released and our bodies are smart, but they don't know exactly where to go. They're just going to get released into the bloodstream, but they don't have like motion detectors that they're going to go to the shoulder. <laughs> Sure. or the finger or the knee, right? And so when it comes to the suggestions from the you know scientific community about when to use BFR and how often to use BFR after an injury, especially a surgical injury, they say multiple times per day, mm. every day, multiple times per day. And that really is designed to increase the likelihood that those hormones and those molecules are going to go to the body part that needs it because there's a lot of blood flow there already because of the inflammatory response. So it's kind of like a, you know, you know, um, 
throwing a ton of Nerf balls at the hoop, right? Some some of them are going to land, but not all of them are going to land, right? Interesting. Got it. Okay. Um, can you share the specifics of what Jonathan was doing? I'd, I'd love to hear like how you would actually take a client through BFR, you know, if they come in with an injury uh, and they want to recover, maintain their finger strength, maintain their forearm muscles and recover their injury in their shoulder, for instance. What was Jonathan doing? Was he doing this multiple times a day? I don't, I don't try, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's been over a year or so. Um, I think it was mostly uh, maintenance stuff. And so, um, and I can't remember if it was like uh, the exact pathology. Um, so let's assume um, that it was like a AC separation, which is a common injury for a mountain bike accident, like a grade three, let's say, which is pretty bad. Like, so the collarbone essentially sticks up, right? And you can't load the arm. So in that context, you would do the opposite arm and this arm, but you wouldn't really be doing a lot of range of motion with the right arm, with the injured arm. And so you could certainly do whatever you want with this arm, but you would do something with this arm, like maybe a hand gripper to just get blood flow to the arm during another exercise. But if you can't load in a specific position, like on a fingerboard hanging, or you can't put a heavy load in your hand, then you would really want to target the finger flexors with BFR. So you could put a restrictive stimulus on your injured arm and the other arm, and you would use something like a tension block, which is what we used. And then you would hang weight off of it, a lower intensity weight, and you would do finger curls mm. until you're pumped out of your mind. right? And then you would rest a short period of time, and then you would continue doing that. And for someone that has as much capacity as Jonathan would, like he could do that for 20 minutes and be fine. Like, for someone that's like myself, that's been bouldering for a, for a couple of years now, I would be worked in like maybe five sets or 10 sets, right? Where, you know, so it really depends on the individual and the positions they can tolerate. But if we think about like a post-surgical shoulder, you know, um, depending on the surgery, you would probably wait to do BFR on the injured shoulder until the sutures are fully closed. And as soon as the sutures are closed and the stitches are out, you can put the band on that arm. But even if someone had an upper extremity injury and you couldn't load them, you could still do the lower extremity. You could do leg BFR. And again, that's a systemic response, right? So those hormones are going to go everywhere and we're going to potentially get them to the shoulder just by the function of getting a lot of them in the body. And so doing lower extremity BFR for upper extremity stuff still makes sense um, as long as you're doing a mix of both of those things. So you can kind of mix and match there, but there's, the cool thing about BFR is there's so many things you can do. Like there's nothing special about the exercises or exercise in general, right? It's just like, you know, what exercise are you applying to what individual and why? And if there's not a, you know, if there's not any good reason to be specific with the exercise that you choose, let them choose. We'll do whatever you want, right? It doesn't matter. With BFR, what really matters is that they're going to muscular failure, and they're getting that like deep ache in that pump because that's what's, you know, very sympathetically driven. That's really good for your anabolic response. That's the mechanism by which we see like a good uh, adaptation with BFRs. They need to get uncomfortable. And that's one thing that's <laughs> inevitable. You can't, you can't do like an easy BFR session. Like it, that just doesn't make any sense. It sucks the whole time. So the intensity is low, but you feel like your arm's going to explode by the time you finish doing those finger curls. The, the literal intensity is low, but the, the physiological intensity is super high. Okay. And so for like someone like him, no big deal. Get pumped. No big deal. A bouldering athlete get pumped. They're 
like that's a totally different experience, especially if it's someone that's not used to getting pumped with route climbing. Mm. And what would a what would a session look like? I mean, so you're going to muscular failure till you have that deep pump, and then you're stopping. Are you taking the band off? Are you leaving it on? Are you doing multiple sets of that in a given time frame? How would the mechanics of the actual BFR session look? So I would say for like a like say like a grade let's say like a grade two pulley sprain, like an A two pulley sprain is really common. A protocol I would not do with those. So that's kind of where it's very specific to the individual. If it was a pulley injury, I'm usually, I'm not a big fan of doing finger curls on people with pulley injuries, like at the beginning, because that's pretty stressful on the pulley. Okay. So I don't really like doing that as an intervention for people with pulley pain or pulley injuries. So you would do something more general. So you can still have them hang on their fingers, but you could do like bicep curls. So you would do a set of bicep curls to failure. So maybe 30 repetitions. Then you could have them go hang on their fingers open-handed to failure. Mm. Then they would rest 30 seconds. Then they would go back and they would do bicep curls again to failure, go back and hang on their fingers to failure. So you can incorporate fatiguing bigger muscles, which the biceps are, and then still applying mechanical stress to the fingers um, and kind of work that way. So you would do four sets of that bicep curls. Then you would do something else, maybe something tricep, you press, do some uh, push-ups to failure, go hang on your fingers, rest 30 seconds. Then after four sets of pressing, you would do four sets of like elbow flexion. So dumbbell wrist curls, hang on your fingers, 30 seconds rest. Wrist extension, hang on your fingers, 30 seconds rest. And 15 to 20 minutes, that's a good like upper body BFR session. That's pretty specific to climbing. So what you what we're seeing there is like the biceps, the triceps, the wrist flexors, the wrist extensors, those muscles are all bigger than the finger flexors. Mm. You know, and so we're going to get a bigger hormonal response by fatiguing more muscle mass. So you can think about it as like working downstream, right? But we're still including the finger flexors because I still want blood flow to go to my finger flexors. But if I'm really tired with getting my general system fatigued, I'm still going to deprive a little bit of the oxygen to my finger flexors, but I'm not going to spend a bunch of time doing this on my pulley because that is going to piss the pulley off. Okay. And when you say doing this for people listening, you're just, you're mimicking a finger curl there. Yeah. You'd be standing up and doing it like this, yeah. you know, with a tension block. Pulling the tent. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And you're leaving, just to be clear, you're leaving the cuffs on that entire time. Yeah, you leave the cuffs on the, the entire time. And so that's where, like, when I teach people, when I teach courses to do this, I have people under pressure them at the beginning. And it really depends on the person. But under pressurizing them at first makes sense just to make sure people get familiar with the methodology because it's scary and the arm discolors and, you know, it feels painful. It feels quite dangerous, right? Um, and so I usually have them make sure they're, you know, don't, I tell people not to blast people like on the first session. Cause they like, I've had some athletes and I've done this, you know, I know from my own experience, I've done this on climbers that I assume could tolerate the loading and, you know, bicep curls are a really stressful exercise. They're mechanical disadvantage all the time. And it's a really big range of motion. So the actual lever is designed for speed, not for force. 
And so doing a full range of motion bicep curl with BFR, like, you know, here is incredibly stressful on the bicep tendon. And, you know, you can take big, strong bodybuilder types of guys and have them do 15 pound curls. And if they're not used to the BFR, they'll get wrecked. Right. So there is, and then this is kind of a new, a new um, insight with BFRs before I think the paper was maybe six months ago or something showing more delayed onset muscle soreness, more muscle damage with BFR. But before that, that, that hadn't really been shown. So one of the assumptions before was that you get all the benefits of BFR, but well, all the strength training, but you don't get the downside, which is the muscle tissue breakdown. But now we know there definitely is some of that. And it feels like that too. It's very sore. If you've never done a BFR session, like you'll get worked the first session. Right. But something called the repeat bout effect is like, how long does it take till you get comfortable with the experience? And it's about three sessions. Okay. So like starting at a, you know, a dosage that's like kind of intense, but not like, Oh my God, this is intense is important. I think for the first couple sessions before people try really hard. Okay. And I'm curious, I mean, as far as if people out there are wanting to try this, I guess a good question to ask at this point is, you know, you're talking about it being scary and your arm discoloring and whatever. Is it actually risky? Like, is this something that people can just go try or is that a terrible idea and they should, you know, seek your advice or work with a professional who knows how to do this? Uh, it depends on their knowledge. Like if it was a, like a nurse practitioner or someone with some medical training, I think it would be fine for them to like try it. You know, um, the product that you use really um, predicts um, how aggressive, I guess you could be with it. Um, like if you're using something that's inflexible, that's like a blood pressure cuff, cause you could do BFR with a blood pressure cuff, but a blood pressure cuff is not flexible, which means if I put a BFR, a blood pressure cuff, in my arm, and I do a muscle contraction. When I increase the volume under the blood pressure cuff, it creates more compression on my blood vessels. And so I'm more likely to get an arterial restriction with a blood pressure cuff than I would with like an elastic band, so to speak, mm. or the product that I use, the be strong product is, you know, is a width. And there's some recommendations that have come out now on BFR guidelines, so to speak from the scientific community about the width of these materials and this, you know, the elastic versus inelastic, et cetera. But if you have an elastic system, it gives when you put more volume underneath it. So it expands a little bit. So you're less likely because of the muscle volume to get full arterial occlusion. So it really depends on the product too. But for someone that has no idea about anything like taking biology in high school and that's it, no medical training or no, like nothing beyond that, I would say maybe, you know, find some more information about it. You know, I think I have some information on my website that's an article from a long time ago, but I have, um, I, I do courses for athletes and coaches and there's one that I recorded that's on my website too, that is a recorded version that people could watch. Okay. Great. I'll, um, I'll link to the be strong cuffs and I'll link to that video on your website or that resource on your website for people that are curious. One question I had, if, you know, if I were to try this, if I were to buy these cuffs and try this myself, if I had a pulley injury, um, using this example of the curls and then the tricep extensions and then the wrist curls, what would be a good starting point for me as far as load? I mean, I would, 
I'd be tempted to start with like a five pound weight and be really conservative, but am I looking to try to get to a certain number of reps before failure or a certain amount of time that it should take me to get to failure? What are some guidelines there? Yeah, the, the most studied protocol has been one set of 30 reps and three sets of 15. Okay. So a 30, 15, 15, 15 protocol with 30 to 60 seconds between is the most used protocol. And I five to six exercises and, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of a session is like a good time frame. Um, as like we did some, um, some bench studies, Jesus, it's been a couple of years now on, I think we had 20 climbers um, that we took through and we had them do, you know, reps to failure. I had everyone do 15 reps just to make it all the same. But I think some of the stronger male climbers were using like, 70 pounds to do their finger curls whoa and that's with both arms you know so 35 pounds per arm okay and i think most of the female participants were using like 50 pounds so like 25 pounds per arm and that would be like doing a standing like finger curl and that was on a 20 millimeter edge you know and we were using a custom board that will made me that's literally 20 millimeters where you could do it with two tension blocks um, and we had them do finger curls until they were pumped out of their mind and then go hang on a fingerboard right after and then rest and then do that for, I think, 13, 13 rounds of that, which took about 15 to 20 minutes. Okay. And those, I might have missed this, that that was people that were recovering from injuries or this was just an experiment with experience? No, those were, all, that was, those were all strength training. So that was an okay. example of like, can we make people's fingers stronger with this? And the answer is sure. Like... And with that, even that um, protocol that was done with the dude, the email guy, can you make your finger stronger with this? Yeah, sure. Of course you can. But it can't just be that one thing indefinitely, right? And so mm. it needs to like be a period of time. So you wouldn't like do that as your only finger training intervention. That doesn't make any sense. But if you're like trying to build the tolerance of being pumped out of your mind and hanging on your fingers, that's probably a really good option, right? It's another option that you can use that's not, doesn't take a lot of time doesn't require a lot of equipment. You don't have to add a bunch of load. It's going to make you experience and be tolerable of the perception of being pumped out of your mind, which most finger training protocols don't. So there's that added value too, right? And so if you can take that idea of that's the general framework of how we do it on with finger training, like you can easily apply that to the climbing wall too. And so when it, when it comes to like loading your connective tissues, that's important and underloading them is important, but we can still load them heavy on a fingerboard with added load, et cetera. But we can also do something like BFR because BFR is a really good stimulus for the muscle. So when we think about, you know, how we get better performance in our finger flexors for climbing, sure, we want our tendons strong, but we do lots of that already. But what about like increasing the capillary density of our muscle? What about making sure the recruitment stays really high? making sure that our muscles actually use as much oxygen as they can and then get clearance, you know? So it's like a lot of the other benefits with BFR happen around like the vascularity of your muscles, you know? Got it. And that, that begs the question for me. Well, I guess first, before we get into that, I will say that I want to bookmark the comment that you just had about Emil and that no hangs program that's um, exploding on the internet right now and everyone seems to be fascinated with. I'm fascinated with it too. Um, so let's come back to that later. But I'm curious, as far as using BFR for um, strength training or for filling in some of these gaps that we're not getting with these other um, finger training protocols, 
How often are you using that, uh, both with your clients and for yourself? I have a lot of route climbers that do BFR. Um, I have less like, uh, well, there's some bouldering athletes that do that, um, that are pretty psyched about doing it. So it's kind of like a, a thing that you can use periodically, right? So again, it's not going to be like you do BFR year round. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. But in like a capacity building phase, like right now when it's summer and hot and people aren't like, oh, depending on where you live, when people are doing a lot of training, like BFR is a pretty good option right now to make sure we like, because you can get some cross-sectional increases, cross-sectional size increases in your muscle with doing BFR because lots of time under tension, lots of metabolic stress. And if you're fueling properly, you can build a lot of capacity right there on your finger flexors and you can still climb. So people that are doing like double sessions, you know, you have a hard bouldering session in the morning and you've loaded your tendons pretty aggressively. Later in the day, you could do something that's maybe less aggressive to your tendons and you could really target fatiguing your muscles and keeping your muscle really strong. Mm. So that would be a good time frame to do it. For sport climbing athletes, I have a lot of sport climbing athletes that will use it in that context as well, but they'll also use it on the wall training, you know, and so they'll oh, do wow. ladders on a campus board to failure and then step off. And then you can like be very systematic with the edge size that you use and how hard it is and how quickly you fail, et cetera. You know, and there's, there's so many different uses for it um, that, you know, there's not like a do this one's the best. It's kind of like, as long as you have a general understanding of how it's used and what's recommended, athletes and coaches can kind of use it for individuals on, you know, their own particular needs. Right. But giving the blanket statement that you need to use it here doesn't really make sense for everyone. Right. Cause we're all in such different phases for our training. Right. Where for me right now, I'm not climbing outside. I was way too busy and trying to push my performance phase long and I just got like over it. And so now I'm all about inside types of training and finger stuff. Right. So I'll probably start doing some BFR in the next week or so. Okay. And if you're in that mode, how often are you doing it? Are you, do, you know, is this something you could do in that example of someone bouldering in the morning and then wanting to do a double session? Can you do that every single climbing day? Is, is there um, a recommended dose? Does it totally depend? Yeah, the, the recommended dosage um, that's been suggested for strength training is two to three times a week. Okay. But not every day. And so every day... Again, well, it is recommended to be done for people that have acute injuries, but for people that are strength training, a couple times a week is fine. You know, and the the dosage of it's going to become exhausted as well, right? So just like any protocol, you can't just like, cool, I'm going to do BFR today, you know, uh, June 10th, and I'm going to keep doing it all the way till September, right? You're at some point, you're going to no longer get the adaptive stimulus, and you need to change that for something else, and so. You know, I usually have people do it maybe for six weeks, six to eight weeks, eight weeks is pushing it after six weeks. You're going to hate doing it. Right. So it's <laughs> like anything. It's like, you know, you're going to get sick of things. And when you get sick of things, what people want to do is they want to be stubborn and just keep fighting through it, expecting there to be some breakthrough at the end of that. Right. And that's not how our physiology works. It changes too quickly and we adapt really fast. So as soon as you've no longer, you know, see any sort of adaptation or you're sick of doing it, stop doing it and find something else to do, right? You'll still get a benefit from doing it, um, you know, and you want to like always kind of like make sure that you, and this is kind of goes back to what you mentioned about what we, what I tell people more than anything is like having the variation and knowing there's lots of options is good because you can, you know, be more selective with what you do. Mm. 
This is a good time to ask that question then, uh, because this is something I'm really curious about. You know, if for people listening that aren't willing to, um, that don't have enough information or knowledge to try BFR on their own or can't afford the cuffs, I know the cuffs are quite expensive. For someone that's intimidated by BFR and doesn't want to go down that route, um, what are some of the other things that we can use to add more variety to our finger strength training, to keep our tendons healthy, to maybe cover some of the the gaps that we're missing with a lot of these most popular programs that people tend to just hammer for months and months? You know, like for, for a long time, there was this debate and, and still there's this debate going on about, you know, repeaters versus max hangs. And those seem to be the two protocols that are kind of elevated more than any others. And very often people fall into one of those camps and just decide that, okay, repeaters are the best for me and I'm going to do them forever. Or max hangs, 10 second max hangs worked really well in that Eva Lopez study. So I'm just going to do them two or three times a week forever and just never change anything and just, you know, keep climbing, but just do the same exact protocol. What are some of the other things that maybe a lot of us are missing out on? Um, I know you've, uh, some of your work on density hangs is really interesting to me. Are there things that we're missing, things that um, we could all explore to, to add some of that variety, not just for increasing and improving our strength over time, but to make sure we're keeping our uh, tendons balanced and healthy and whatever else? I'd say, I would say maybe a cool way to think about it is, you know, why is a 10-second weighted hang not considered a repeater? Like, it is, right? It's just a, it's just a work-to-rest ratio. So if you have a colon between a seven and three, all that means is you're working for seven and you're resting for three. If you do a 10 60, you're just working for 10 and resting for 60. You're just using a different intensity, right? So it's the same thing. It's still a repeater. And I think what people like, what we can say as a general statement is they're, they're both, they both work, right? So if you did like a 10 30, let's say, or 10 60 times three, you know, you're doing 30 seconds of time under tension on your muscle. If you do a seven, three times five, you're doing 35 seconds of time under tension on your muscle. The only difference is how much rest you're giving between those efforts. And the more important question is why are we resting that longer period or why are we not resting that long period? You know, so it, it probably doesn't really matter. And, and unless, well, it does because there needs to be a reason why you're choosing one over the other. Not that one is better than the other because they both have a very different purpose my like criticism with the 10 uh, not criticism but my like question that i always ask about the 10 second effort one is unless you're you know for you individually unless you're spending that much time on a hold which is how it was created it's probably not that specific to you and if you're only holding on for six or seven seconds you know what's the point of the extra three seconds right um and if you're trying to go at max intensity, it does not take 10 seconds to hit peak recruitment. It only takes a couple seconds, like three to five seconds. So all that extra time, what's the point of doing that really? Because you could save that energy and do more repetitions of a shorter work to rest ratio, which would be like a seven, three times five, you know? So there's just different ways that you could think about doing it, right? Just the, the fact that one was published and people got strong that should not be that big of a deal or a big surprise to people like that. Emil guy got really strong or strong with his protocol. And like, you know, sure it was a small sample size, but he got really strong. Right. We've done the same thing with BFR. 
So one of the V13 climbers that we tested got 70 pounds stronger with, you know, 10 sessions of BFR. Holy smokes. Finger training, right? And so, you know, these big jumps in strength are are great, but like to put all of the value of a training program on that is I think really short-sighted because mm. anything that's above the intensity of our sport is going to be beneficial for our sport. So, you know, I think the big thing that people miss out on is the whole point of finger training in the first place. And from my perspective, finger training is protective for athletic injuries because it has different components than climbing does, right? It's more controlled. It has more, it has less velocity. It has less variation in the direction of those forces. All of those things are protective for athletic injuries. So, um, I mean, I'm not maybe answering your question exactly how you want it. I'm not sure, but like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think, you know, what are we missing? I think what we're missing is the rationale for why we're doing it in the first place and maybe a better evaluation of those things and how hard they are for individuals, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent answer. I, I'm trying to decide where to go here. I had one more BFR question and we could just completely go down this finger strength rabbit hole and never come back to the BFR. So I think I want to check that box first and then dive a little deeper into some of this uh, finger strength stuff and this program that Emil's doing, because I have a question about that. But um, one final thing I wanted to ask about the BFR is uh, the short-term recovery. You know, like Mercedes, when I talked to her, and I know for listeners, I'm bouncing all over the place here, but um, I just want to wrap this up. So she got back from a bouldering trip and she was using BFR as kind of like an active recovery, you know, during her deload to ramp back into training make sure that she was feeling healthy and recovered and whatever else. What's going on there? Why, why would that be helpful in the short term after a performance phase? So as like a recovery, you know, it's all about just your, your blood flow. And so if we can, you know, make the muscle work like, you know, at a lower intensity, but still have to, you know, make the muscle work hard. And with the resting, with the rest between sets of BFR, that's where a lot of the, metabolic stress happens. So if I have a restrictive stimulus and I am only restricting the venous return to my heart with my exercise, I'm putting a little compression on my artery, but not full compression. I'm still getting blood flow, new blood to my working limb. But when I stand there and I'm not exercising during the resting period, which is important, people aren't like shaking out or trying to exercise because you want to stop the muscle pump from working. And if they're standing there, they're just resting their arm, I still have blood flow pumping into my arm. So you can think about it as like filling up your arm with fluid, right? And then when I start working again, then I start pumping that blood out again. And so after, and what it does is it raises your cardiac output, it raises your heart rate. So after I'm done with my session, I take it off, your heart rate's elevated and it keeps pumping out, right? So the the goal there, the idea there is to try and, you know, elevate your heart rate and keep it pumping to working tissue to get, you know, both good, uh, a good anabolic response, but also to get like a vasodilatory effect after the um, stimulus. So you get more clearance and good clearance, right? And it's just another way to get lots of fluid in your tissues, which the literal temperature with that fluid is warming, which can be like good for like, you know, sliding mechanisms of your nerves and your muscles and your connective tissues in addition to like getting the heart pumping and clearing out capillary beds. Okay. 
It's fascinating, man. This is such a rich topic. There's, uh, I'm sure there's a lot more to learn, but I, I think um, that was a pretty good overview of BFR and how we can be thinking about using it as climbers. So yeah, we talked about recovering from an acute injury and then recovering from a, a trip like Mercedes was doing and then using it for strength training. Uh, any final thoughts on BFR? Anything we didn't touch on that's interesting or that people should be considering if they're curious about it? Anything else come to mind? Uh, I mean, yeah, there's the, another another cool application is using it uh, prior to your sessions. Um, and that's one that's, I would say, mostly, uh, well, I don't know many bouldering athletes that have done this, but definitely route climbers that have done this. I know Eric's done this quite a bit where um, you can use BFR as a, you can consider it like warming up your energy systems before hard work. Huh. And so if you, and this is a, maybe a different protocol, even the more scary of all the protocols where you do want like 70 to 90% arterial occlusion. So you don't need a hundred percent, but you need a high percentage. So if your artery is like, say, here's the diameter of your artery and there's 50%, you want it like really tight. <laughs> so you're restricting, but if you do get hundred percent, that's okay too, but you're not exercising too. And so the, this restrictive stimulus is very high but the exercise is nil. So you're just sitting or standing and you're doing that for like five minutes and then you're releasing the pressure for three minutes, completely releasing the pressure, taking them off. Even we usually have people leave them on cause it's a pain to put them back on. But then you're tightening them up again and then you're releasing them completely and you go through these cycles. And that was the original BFR protocol from non-ambulatory like patients, when they had ACL reconstructions, they inflate them at 100% and restrict their blood flow and then get this big flush of fluid afterwards. Mm. And what it does is it creates hypoxia in your tissues. So your tissues, the glycolytic system, glycolysis starts like kicking in. And you're like, man, also all the enzymes that are responsible for that system to be efficient, they essentially warm up, so to speak. And that's been studied quite a bit in anaerobic sports. And so that's a really cool methodology for climbing, especially if you go to a popular crag and there's a lot of people and there's no warmups, right? You got to jump on 514 or 513 plus, and there's not a lot of warmups there. You can warm your tissues, your systems up really quickly that way. And then you can just do a couple things and then start climbing as hard as you can. Wow. So you would bring these cuffs to the crag and just be doing BFR at the base of your route. You could bring them to the crag or you could, you know, do them in your car right there. But essentially it's like, <laughs> like a 40 minute, uh, not when you're driving, but someone else is driving. But there's like, like <laughs> yeah. a 35 minute warm up, right? But it literally is like not comfortable. And so you're not going to be exercising. I've even tried to like type and do, do work when I've done that. It's impossible. It's really uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, I like, so, so that's another like cool way that people use BFR that's, you know, looks really dangerous has actually been studied quite a bit um that you know some divisional level athletics programs do it with their athletes when they're sitting in their locker room as you know like the final warm-up mm. well thank you for all that that was very fascinating and i don't know if i'm i don't know if it made me more ready to go out and buy a set of cuffs or just more intimidated by the whole thing <laughs> yeah i mean it's I'm like anything. intrigued yeah, there's lots to do, right? And that's the same thing about a fingerboard. You know, you go buy a fingerboard for someone that doesn't know how to use a f use. They don't know how to use a fingerboard, right? Like that. Who like people say that all the time? Like I don't. I have a fingerboard, but I don't know how to use it. Say, 
what do you mean you don't know how to use it? Just hang on the damn thing. It's not that hard, right? <laughs> and the, like the easiest way to think about a fingerboarding protocol is like, I'll, I'll usually tell people, I'll say, take a video of yourself climbing, right? And they take a video of themselves climbing a boulder. Say, I want you to count how much time you spend on the hold, every hold. So how many hand moves are you making? You're making 10 hand moves. How much time are you spending on every hand hold? Seven seconds or 10 seconds or five seconds. Great. You just made a finger training program. If you hang on your board at that same ratio, you're already making your fingers stronger than they would on the climbing wall, right? So like do five moves with both hands, hang on for five seconds, maybe let go for one second. Or you could even do, if it's taking you five seconds, you're taking you 30 seconds total to get to the top, hang on with both hands for 30 seconds, right? Like it doesn't need to be that complicated. Like we overcomplicate finger training on a fingerboard by giving all these random ass like work to rest ratios. But mm. I think that misses the point of how having a little bit greater of a stimulus than our sport gives us more opportunity for practice. Right. And that's how it's protective and like helpful, I think in the long term. Okay. I'm curious with that. How do density hangs fit into that picture? Because that is something that I had not encountered until you, until I saw some of your work you know, a 30 or 40 second long hang and doing rounds of that. My understanding is that's like a tendon stretching thing. You're, you're, um, uh, stretching, you're, you're hanging long enough to exhaust the muscle and then stretch the tendon. And that is somehow improving the health of the tendon. Is that a key thing that a lot of us should be doing more of? Um, what's the purpose of it? I'd love to hear how tendon density hangs fit into the picture. Yeah. So that last thing that maybe I described was like essentially a 30 second hang, right? Which is what I, and I call it density hang simply because it's fatiguing. It's to failure. So the actual muscle size will become a little bit more dense just by the time under tension for an adult, your tendons aren't really going to get denser unless they're injured, but finger tendons, like I mentioned, surprisingly for climbers don't get injured that often. It's not, they never do, but it's not nearly as common as your pulleys. Mm. But if you think about like, and tendons don't stretch, right? They're very inflexible, but what they do is because they're all lined up in the same direction, if we add a really low velocity load, we can actually let the water molecules separate so they shear next to each other. And so that shearing and that sliding of the collagen matrix next to each other is what Dr. Barr's research shows is like reduces some of the bonding between those fibers, which makes them less stiff. And so if we try and apply that to the pulleys, we want to apply it in like an open-handed position, which is not that stressful. But if I go to a more stressful position, it's one way that we can increase what's called the physiologic bowstring of our tissues, both like before maybe a climbing event, if we're outside climbing or a competition, whatever, or like later in the day, if we're doing our finger training. So like that, and it doesn't have to be done that way. There's lots of different ways, right? That's just one way to do it. That's really simple to apply. And the one thing I like about going to failure is I know that if I'm going to failure, I'm making my muscle, I'm working my muscle really hard. Whereas if I'm doing like a seven, three times five, you know, five is a pretty arbitrary number. So unless I'm adding load to fail at five, then I'm probably not stressing my muscle as much as I could where just going to failure would give me the same thing. So the difference mm. there maybe is like, if you did seven, three times five at a heavy load on the same edge as hanging to failure on the same loads, you're going to get the same outcome for the most part. Okay. It just takes you longer to get to recruitment if you're going to failure than it would with a seven, three times five. 
Interesting. Got it. Okay. Well, you mentioned a couple of things there that are a, a good lead into another topic I want to dive into. You've mentioned Emil a couple of times in this conversation, and I'm guessing most of the people listening to this won't know what we're talking about with that. But you also just mentioned Keith Barr. So I want to set this up and give some context for listeners, and then I've got some questions. Uh, there's this protocol, this hangboard protocol that is kind of going viral on the internet right now. And it was popularized by these two brothers, Emil and Felix. Um, I think over in, are they in Sweden or Norway? I have no idea. Yeah, somewhere somewhere in, um, <laughs> somewhere in uh, Scandinavia, I'm not sure. But they took a research paper from Keith Barr where he was engineering ligaments in a lab. And he found that if you exercise the ligaments for 10 minutes uh, twice a day or three times a day, at least six hours apart, that was the best way to strengthen them. And so uh, one of these brothers took that and he applied it to the hangboard and he said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work my fingers lightly for 10 minutes twice a day, six hours apart. And he did that by hanging on a, well, air quotes, hanging on a hangboard with his feet on the ground. So just standing underneath a hangboard, pulling gently on the hangboard with his feet still on the ground and doing that 10 seconds on, 50 seconds off for 10 minutes. And then he would do that six hours later, you know, so he would do it in the morning and evening. And, uh, you know, Emil is this YouTuber, very strong climber, very big training experience or very deep training experience. And he shot this really fascinating YouTube video where he tests his finger strength beforehand. And then he does this protocol for 30 days, twice a day, and then tests after. And he makes these astronomical improvements in his strength across all these different grips that he's testing. And he claims that his fingers feel healthier and better than they ever have. And now there's all this uh, funny activity on the internet where a lot of people are trying it and getting good results and people are really excited about it. And then a lot of people are skeptical and people are, you know, there's this whole thread on Reddit trying to figure out what exactly is happening and whether or not there's actual physiological change. And I'm curious about it because I just did a cycle of it actually. So I got back from Waco and I had a minor finger injury and I was in St. George sport climbing. And I learned about this from uh, Steve Mache. And so I, I watched the video I found it really compelling and I did that protocol for about six weeks. I was doing it twice on rest days and once on climbing days and I got really good benefit from it. I found that it it helped my finger recover. My fingers almost 100% recovered and I made about 12 to 14% strength improvement across almost all of my grips. And I mean, for context for people that that haven't tried it like it's so easy that you basically don't even need to warm up for it you know you're you're pulling at about 50 percent of your one rep max for 10 seconds times 10. Um, and so i'm curious i've heard you talk about this a little bit you were just on an episode uh, with training beta where you guys geeked out about finger strength um, that i found really interesting but you know i'm really I'm tempted to just try this cycle, uh, you know, maybe rotate the grips, pick some different grip positions and try this whole thing again, because I love a program that basically has zero risk. You know, if anything, it made my fingers feel better. And it was pretty impressive in its results, given that I've done a lot of hangboarding in the past and I actually hit some PRs on the on the hangboard. So I'd love to hear. It sounds like you're a little skeptical as far as whether this is leading to long-term adaptations and whether it's something that can be used over a longer-term 
uh, cycle. What do you think is happening there? And like, is there any chance that we're actually making physiological, like structural changes to our tendons or connective tissues with such light loading? Um, maybe there's some magic in the frequency and um, getting uh, nutrients to our tendons more often. Is there anything potentially good happening there? Or is it simply, I think, I think your hypothesis was that it was just like a deloading phase so that when he went and tested again, he was really fresh and he was able to perform really well on those, on, on that hangboard test the second time around. And maybe there was some stiffening going on and maybe too much stiffening is a bad thing. I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'd love to hear how you're thinking about that and what you think might be happening with a program like that. Yeah, definitely some deloading, which is good for every athlete. It also brings up the question of like, maybe we do too much all the time, mm. right? Like, you know, think about like all the things to do. Everyone's got to fit in all the things. Like if you're still climbing at a high intensity, you're probably getting enough stress, you know, to the connective tissue to keep it pretty strong. And things on top of that, fingerboarding are good for hydrating the tendon and if we don't do too much, we net increasing the fluid content of our connective tissues. If we do too much, which is really hard to know how much, then we dehydrate the tissue. Then that rubbing mechanism becomes temperature change for an increase, which breaks down connective tissue. And so I think I'm not skeptical at all. I'm not surprised at all that it worked. And I'm a big proponent of people doing low volume, moderate to high intensity stuff. But if you only did that, so say, cool, do that for, you know, 30 days and don't climb at all. And then let me know how you respond. Right. Tell me that your climbing performance goes up too. Right. And so that's the real like question there is like, if you're still loading pretty aggressively on the climbing wall and you're still climbing hard, doing limit bouldering and all those things, like you're doing enough to maintain your levels of strength. Right. And if, but no one's going to stop climbing and just do that for a couple months and see how it goes. Right. And then get back on the climbing wall. That would for sure increase your injury risk. So I don't, I love the simplicity of it. I love the like multiple days of loading of it. I don't think there's really a whole lot of criticisms that I would do with it. It's just one way to do it though. There's lots of, you know, lots of things that you could do. And I don't think there's anything particularly special about like the 10 on 60 off. You could do repeaters in the same way. Yeah, that was a really arbitrary protocol that they just decided to do. That, I mean, that, they just do that, I think, because that's common. You know, yeah. I test 1062 just because it's commonly done, but not because I think it's any particularly thing unique about it. But to, there, the, there's that other Japanese study, too, where people do, females did max vertical jumps, and they got the same outcome. But a max vertical jump is very different than a 50% hang on your fingers, it's way more velocity, way more stiffness promoting, but they had a similar outcome, hmm. you know? And so you could do the same thing and you could do what I termed velocity hangs and you could get the same outcome there too. You would see a huge improvement in your strength. So I think there's like, I think the, the coolest thing that people can learn from it is you don't need to have like this really sexy, amazing, you know, five-year Excel spreadsheet for your finger training program to make your fingers perform better for climbing. You need something that's, consistent, something that's has a low dosage at a session, something that has relative frequency to remind your tissues of what you expect them to do. And, you know, I've tell, told people for years, both clients of mine are teaching courses that there's plenty of evidence to support that, you know, how we define connective tissue capacity is by doing regular things. And 
the more irregularity we add into those things, the more risky it is for getting injured. So the thing that's great about that is it's very regular. It's just like you do the same thing all the time. It's really like straightforward. You know what to do. At some point, the dosage of that's going to be exhausted and you're going to need to do something else. But the regularity of it, I think, is is one thing that we can gain uh, some good knowledge from. Yeah, that's <clears throat> that's really interesting. I, I remember, I don't know where I've even heard this, but I remember learning maybe from Steve Bechtel about frequency of isometric training and tendon training versus intensity versus duration, et cetera. And I remember the takeaway being like, okay, maybe the load that we use doesn't matter as much as we thought. Like maybe you don't need to use 100% of max to get these same adaptations with isometric strength. Um, I was really fascinated to find that, okay, I literally just used 50% of my max for a month and got really great benefit from, from doing that, really great strength increases. Do we know the science about that? Do we know if there's any chance that a 50% load is enough to create lasting strength in our tissues, in our uh, isometric strength? Is it like a grease the groove uh, neurological thing? Do, do you have any thoughts on that? It's yeah, for sure. I mean, that's like what, like I did my master's thesis on was like tendon pathology. So my background is on like rehabilitative loads. And so the rehabilitative loads that have been shown to be productive for like collagen turnover, like 85%, 75 to 85%. So they're, that's not high enough. And, you know, for the optimal cell signaling, um, the researchers that know tendon stuff would say, so they need more intensity, I would say, um, for like good, like robust connective tissue health. And, you know, like the most commonly used protocol for like uh, tendons, specifically the Achilles and the knee is 75% intensity, five sets at 45 seconds if you're using an isometric. But the cool thing to know is you can do an eccentric and you can do an isotonic, which is a full range of motion. And you're going to get the same outcome. There's plenty of evidence to support that they both work. But the important thing is to note that that 15 seconds of an eccentric or an isotonic, they take about 45 seconds to complete the exercise, the thing, whatever it is you're doing. So they're more similar than they are different, right? And so just like finger training protocols, they're way more similar than they are different. So mm. don't stress about the minor details because they're probably not that important at all. You know, and I tell people when we do rehab, you know, do you have a preference for one over the other? And if you do, why? Like, you know, people have preferences and we need to me as a coach and a therapist, we need to like cater to those preferences because sometimes we can miss the mark if people expect to do one thing and they don't get another thing, which is kind of bringing it all full circle kind of why I've been moved a lot of my business to being remote because people come into my office as a chiropractor expecting some like some stretching and poking and jabbing and popping and stuff. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. But like, you want, you should learn about this other stuff because it's way better. Right. And it's way more sustainable and it's way more like on you to do it. Right. Like I can't fix your shit. I'm sorry. I wish that I could, but nobody can. It's like, you got to do the things. Right. And so like, I think that's important for people to realize is, um, and maybe I lost my train of thought there, but like, yeah, the, they're, they're more, they're way more similar than they are different. Okay. Um, I'm curious, I'm going to ask a self-serving question with this same protocol. So like I described, I did it for, I think 
60 sessions and it took a little longer than 30 days because I was doing it once on climbing days. So I did it for about six weeks, tested myself again, did the exact same lineup of grips as the first time, um, saw great benefit. And I decided to change up the grip selection um, and then use new loads. So I'm doing the no hangs, but I'm also doing some of them with a tension block targeting about 50% of my one rep max. And so I added in some new grips and then I kept a couple of them the same, but I used the new 50% based on my, uh, you know, my, my new uh, max strength from the second test. And so I'm kind of using myself as a guinea pig. I want to do another cycle and see if I continue to make progress using the same protocol for another month of it. I'm curious, is there any risk there? I know you mentioned over stiffening the system as a, you know, a potential thing to be aware of. Do you think there's any risk or am I just, you know, eventually going to plateau and stop getting benefit from it? Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't, there's probably not a risk as long as the velocity of the things are pretty low, but it depends if you're sport climbing, it's probably, um, even less riskier than if you were like bouldering in a bouldering phase and you were only doing like high intensity bouldering, then, you know, you're, you're going to, you know, maybe create more because the, in the 10 seconds, isn't like enough time to really reduce the stiffness of the tissue. And, and I say risk in the sense of, we know from like ACL reconstruction literature or Achilles tendon tears that people that underload their tissue when they literally stop loading, it stiffens your tissue. And so they come mm. back to sport and they feel really snappy and they feel like their performance is really high, but that's kind of a risk factor because their muscle tendon connection is less optimal than it was before their injury. And they're at risk of getting more of like a rotational like tear again. And that's been documented pretty well. And so that's why like rehabilitation protocols include that long time under tension because we know that the longer times under tension are more health promoting for the muscle and the tendon. And so, um, you know, I don't, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I know quite a few people that have tried this protocol as well. Um, and maybe and had different outcomes, but I think there's, um, you know, you, I think people could try doing like a repeater, you know, at 50% and, you know, just switch up the numbers. And what you're going to see is you're going to see the same damn thing, which is really good <laughs> to see, to say, cool. There, that's another example that, you know, as long as you're doing something to remind your tissues that you, what do you expect them to do? You should see an improvement in strength, but I wouldn't like, and even for a beginner, maybe that's a good protocol for a beginner to use just like, you know, something that's, you know, you do on your fingers as a way to, just get that repetitive loading uh, to the tissue, I think is maybe really helpful. Okay, got it. So the over stiffening is not this protocol or doing this every day. It's more that you're you're lacking the higher intensity loading that would help promote health of the tendon. Am I getting yeah. that correct? So if you so if you stopped climbing for a couple months and you only did this and then you went back to high bouldering, that would be a risk factor for getting injured, in my opinion. Got it. Okay. Cause you're not, you're not applying, but if you're doing it at the same time. And so that would be like for, if you are climbing somewhere vertical and you're, um, or let's say you're climbing somewhere, uh, terrain wise, you're doing a bunch of trad climbing, doing a bunch of big wall trad climbing. And then you go to, you know, and you stop training your fingers altogether and you go straight to limit bouldering at your limit on the moon board. That's a risk factor for getting injured. Cause you're not, your system's not used to all that velocity um, stress. Same thing would be applied to this protocol. The fact that they were still climbing at a high level during it 
allow their tissues to tolerate that high repetitive stress, but doing it by itself would not be a good idea. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, um, that was factoring in for me because I do get a lot of variety with my climbing and I am kind of working through these different phases. So cool. Well, I will uh, be everybody's guinea pig and I'll report back after another round of this and see if I get further benefit from it. Yeah. And how do they test? I'm not sure how they, how do they test themselves? Um, he was, he did it differently than I did. So I tested like a five second one rep max on a number of different grips. And I was using, um, I was testing mostly one hand hangs with assistance and trying to figure out what my max percentage of body weight was with a five second one rep max. And and those did improve, like I said, 12 to 14% across almost all my grips. Um, full crimp, open hand, three finger drag, those all went up. I think he was just, I think he did one weighted hang on like a 14 mil edge on that small Beastmaker edge. And then his other tests were just small edge hanging at body weight to see how long he could go. Okay. Yeah. Well, the small edge hanging at body weight for sure would be a representation of like a stiffer tissue, mm. you know, more than it is a muscular strength thing, because there's no way you're going to increase the muscular strength by loading it at 50%. Right? Okay. That doesn't make any sense. So physiologically, the only possible reason is he was under training. So he was recovering better. So he was more rested because he previously maybe had been overtraining or he made his tendons stiffer. So he increases time by making his rate of force development greater, which would allow him to hang on longer. Right. Cause if the rate at which I apply force across my pulleys is faster, my gas tank goes a further distance, right? I can hang on longer because that rate is really quick. Okay fascinating so there's a bunch of different reasons why and like i think you know like yeah i think that's important to point out right is like there's there's so many different ways people can do that which is which is really cool i think yeah just get a hangboard and be playful and experiment get and, a hangboard and don't like don't get all sweaty and tired on it don't like don't, <laughs> yeah don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to i mean you can grunt and groan if you're trying really hard doing like recruitment pull stuff but like as a general rule like you know you should be resting way more than you're hanging, but like do it all the time, do it repetitively, you know, do it like, you know, four days a week. That's totally fine. As long as, you know, you're not like exhausted by doing it and mm. you're not doing it, you know, like it, that really should give people a better insight too. Cause I get lots of questions of, should I fingerboard before my session, like right before or right after my session? I'd say I would never fingerboard. Like I would warm up with a fingerboard. I suggest that a lot, but not like a finger training program. Mm. Like do it at another time during the day. Why the hell would you do it after your climbing session? That never has made sense to me. And that's a really bad practice, I think. So I think one of the things maybe we can get from that protocol is like, there's no reason to finger train after your climbing session. Like go home, eat some food, read a book. Like quit being so anxious about your training because we're probably not going to get that much additional benefit by doing it right after our training. Okay. Is there any magic to doing the two sessions in a day with them separated versus just training more frequently? Any thoughts on that? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. And I've like, you know, like, no, I've read many or probably all things that Keith Barr has published. And like, I've always been a big fan of doing that, you know, and I'm like, I think it, it makes so much sense from like the, his research behind the tendon 
um, adaptation, but from a muscle standpoint, it just makes so much more sense from an athletic profile. And by doing it on myself for the last many years, like I've only seen a benefit by training my fingers on the same day, you know, and like you mentioned, you don't feel like you have to warm up for your hangs. Like I never warm up for my fingerboarding. Like I just start hanging on my fingers, Mm. you know? So that's another thing that people spend way too much time doing is like this big, long warm up for whatever it is they're trying to do. If I'm just trying to load my fingers, maybe I'll hang on like the open hand on a pull-up bar for a couple sets doing lock off things, whatever. But for the most part, just start hanging on your fingers. Your connective tissues are way strong. We're not going to hurt them. You know, like I would tell people all the time, like the research that's been done on the pulleys, like a single A2 pulley has been shown to tolerate a hundred pounds of force by itself. Wow. You know, that's a lot of load, right? And if you put all eight, all four fingers on, that's eight pulleys, man. That's way more force than we're able to produce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't need to be as freaked out about loading our fingers with the intensity or the frequency. It's really about like the dosage, just like huge dosages of things repetitive day after day. And the systemic fatigue, again, tying back to the beginning of what we talked about, the lifestyle choices and habits that people make are way more important than like the finger training program they're doing to create a sustainable, like, you know, athletic profile for a you know long life of climbing. Got it. That's really interesting. So just for people listening, it's, I think I remember hearing that you often boulder in the morning and then you work throughout the day and then you do your fingerboarding in the evening. Is that a pretty common mm-hmm. schedule for you? Like three, four yeah. days a week? Yeah. And like, I have like, you know, two businesses and four kids. So if you, <laughs> if you don't have time for it, you're lying to yourself. <laughs> no, you just gotta like, you know, I don't have a two hour block later in the day, you know, but like I can hang on my fingers and then do something and then hang on my fingers and do something. Right. It doesn't need to be something extravagant. It just needs to be done on all the time. Right. And find the time to do it. And everyone has a fingerboard at their house, you know, so just, you know, be logical with it. Cool. Well, I have one final topic that I am curious about with you. We don't need to go deep on it, but do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, I have like five minutes. Okay. Um, we can keep this quick. I'm just curious like what you're, what you're digging into now and what's new and exciting for you with your own um, research and experimentation. But I have for a long time been really fascinated or just fixated on like the half crimp position. I really want to be able to hang from that damn center beast maker rung at body weight, one arm and a half crimp someday. You know, I'm very far away from doing that. And it really has always lagged behind my open four strength, like very significantly. I never make as much progress in the half crimp, even though I've trained it more. And I'm just very far from being able to do that. Whereas with my open four, I'm getting pretty close. And I started to pay attention to this more after Uh, hearing some things that you were working on, actually, I started to notice that I think it's an anatomy issue. Like, I think it has something to do with the length of my, the length of my pinky. When I go into a half crimp, my pinky is kind of halfway in between being crimped and being open, and it's not really loading that heavily. And then there's also something weird happening where it's difficult for me to bend my middle and ring finger at the DIP joint or the, sorry, the PIP joint, the middle, the second joint in your fingers. It's hard for me to bend them past 90 degrees. And so what happens is when I half crimp the back of my hand, you know, the, the knuckle at the base of my fingers sticks out a little bit, almost like I'm in a quarter crimp position. Like I'm crimping at like 120 degrees or something. 
And I think those things have to be playing into why that grip is so weak for me. But I also find that I almost never use that grip when I'm climbing and it's not terribly comfortable. And I opt for full crimps or open hand pretty, pretty commonly. But um, I'm really curious about this because I've been hearing that and I've been seeing on your Instagram that you're starting to do some experiments with measuring different uh, bone lengths and tendon attachment points in people's fingers and really digging into finger anatomy and the implications of that for our training and climbing. So I'd just love to hear uh, kind of broadly, what are you excited about with that? What are you finding with some of that early experimentation and, and what are some of the implications on uh, finger training for climbing? Yeah, there's another paper that I um, just talked about the last maybe on my Instagram about the PIP joint. It's really cool. The anatomy is really unique. And so the end of the proximal bone right here, they have like these things on the ends of the bone, the long bone called condyles. And the condyle just means knuckle. So there's one on both sides, essentially, of my bone here. So if I look at my middle finger, this long bone has two ends of the bone, right, called condyles. So for listeners, this is right, ab right above where your wedding ring would go on one of your fingers. Yeah, yeah. So just like at the end of the knuckle, like right at the end, there's condyles right there on both sides. And then on the other bone, on the middle bone, sorry if I'm flipping you off, there's <laughs> condyles on that side too, right? So what's really cool and unique about like the fingers is it's been documented, you know, that their condyles are asymmetric, like just naturally they're asymmetric in people. And so everyone, when you flex your finger, like each finger has a different shape to it than the adjacent fingers. And that's just like, as like a general textbook explanation, that's not even explaining the physiologic variation or the anatomical variation between me and you, or you and someone else, right? Like huge variations in anatomy. So, you know, that means it puts like the, the ability to produce a lot of torque is defined by the anatomy and how those joints are shaped, right? Without question. So, I mean, that's nothing we're going to change and I would never suggest that, but like, that means that like, there's some limitations, you know, if you want to call them that, or there's some reasons to maybe use certain things over other things. Right. And in your case, you say the half crimp's not comfortable. Don't use it. Right. Like I would say it's the, the return on your investment is very small. So from an economics perspective, that's stupid. That's a bad business move to use it. Right. It's, using energy and time and it's maybe increasing your injury risk. You're not getting much out of it. Hmm. When it comes to the things that I've been measuring, um, we've been interested in measuring the, the length of people's bones, the distal bone and the actual length of their attachment and how far that attachment goes from the joint itself. And so certainly that, you know, influences how much force someone can produce across that joint. The, further away from the center of rotation, my tendon attaches, the more torque I can produce. And the length of my bone also influences that, right? So that ratio is really interesting. Um, and interested in that simply because I, you know, consult people around the world with finger pain. And so people that have finger pain, that's one thing that I, it's very obvious, like, well, what kind of edge are you using and why? And if you have really long fingers and you're just dying to hang on a 10 millimeter edge, but you're not spending a lot of time outside climbing on a 10 millimeter edge. There's really no reason to use one. Like you're not, you're not getting that much additionally stronger by using that small edge. Right. And so it's really maybe giving people a bit, a bit more 
um, awareness that we don't all need to have the same standards of like testing or we don't need to, we shouldn't be all tested in the same way or benchmarked, let's say in the same way, because we're all built really differently, you know? And so um, it really, I think helps, helps people understand hopefully is what I'm hoping to get out of this is that people understand they can be more customized with their finger training. And, you know, we've, I've talked to a couple of people about the small edge training stuff. The small edge training stuff is more stressful on the pulleys, but it's a neurologic thing. It's like a motor learning thing, you know, but if people are using really small edges and their fingers are consistently sore, they need to stop doing that because they're not mm. going to win. Their anatomy is going to win every time. You know, we can only swim upstream so much until we drown. And that's kind of a, a problem that I see a lot with finger training is we get really stuck with these, oh, I have to go with a 10-second heavy. Then I have to start using the minimal edge training because that's what so-and-so did and they got really strong. So yeah, that's cool, but, like, is the reward that much greater than the risk, right? And so if we don't try other things or we don't think about it in a different way, then we just, we're just going to, like, keep getting injured all the damn time. And people get injured – finger injuries and it's so obvious why they get injured it's so like for me i'm always like cool that was really easy to figure out stop doing that and you're <laughs> not going to get injured as much right and so instead of like having to be like shoot a fancy laser at it or like do some random ass therapy to us like stop doing that and be more aware of the things that you're doing and understand a little bit more about your physiology and you're going to get injured way less mm -hmm. right and maybe that's kind of lots of different things to think about but interested in that for sure um, right now. Um, and with the clinic that we have here, we're going to test everyone's fingers and do a bunch more measurements. But I think we have a sample size of like 30 right now, which is okay. Cool. Well, I'm excited to follow along and see what comes out of that. Um, I know we're coming up against your time cutoff, so I'll just wrap up here. I have a couple of rapid fire questions for you. Um, what is the fastest you've ever eaten a donut? Ooh, um, I don't know. I've never timed donut eating. That's a great question. That's one of my favorite questions someone's ever asked me. Um, I don't know. Um, depends on the donut, right? Like it's <laughs> like what kind of donut, right? It gets tricky. Um, like a Krispy Kreme donut, you can just stick one in your mouth and swallow it. No big deal. <laughs> but like a apple fritter donut, man, you better like, you know, sit for a while and consume it. I have no idea. Maybe... <laughs> I really don't know. Is there, what is the donut that's the go-to for the donut lock-off challenge? Is there one that's like the, is there like a benchmark? The original was an apple fritter, apple but no, I don't think anyone can do that. That's I've cruxy. never seen anyone do that. It's <laughs> super cruxy. Like, I think my max hang time that was the best for me with one arm was like 42 seconds with one arm at 90 degrees. And there's no way in hell I can eat an apple fritter in 42 seconds. <laughs> there's no way. <laughs> Okay, what is your next tattoo? Do you have one picked out? Um, I actually just got one yesterday. Oh, sweet! <laughs> I mentioned that. Yeah, I just got one yesterday. So I'm I like classical tattoos, like traditional tattoos. What does that mean? Uh, traditional is just like uh, it's like um, they're all black. So okay. I like black. Well, they can be colored too, but it's just kind of like a style of artwork that's like you know the the classic traditional tattoos are like knives and like skulls and like things that are like in that kind of uh vein but i have always liked that look um with black style tattoos so yeah it's been like originally i was psyched to because i've always liked 
tattoos. Like I've never really wanted like a full like sleeves thing, but I like the look of many different pieces from different people. And so I originally started like my arm again with when I was traveling to teach because it was something fun to do when I was teaching and like go meet some new people and like have this experience. And so then COVID happened. And so I've gotten like four since I've been <laughs> home. <laughs> and so hopefully we'll, we'll be able to travel more, but I'll probably be done soon. I probably won't cover my body too much more. <laughs> <laughs> and then I recently learned that you are a musician as well. Or you play guitar. Uh, is there a song or a riff that you're working on learning right now? Oh man, I would definitely not my, consider myself a musician. I am like a self, self-taught guitar you know lover like I, lo- I like playing the guitar and i in high school i taught myself how to play the guitar i mean taught myself just picked up a guitar right and started playing and um so i know very little about music theory stuff you know um but i like metal like a lot so like um, you know spending time learning metallica riffs and like pantera riffs and like rage against the machine is kind of my generation of what i grew up with and like when i was in high school we'd play like it you know the um assembly bands play like you know a lot that's when ride the lightning came out the metallica album so we would you know play for whom the bell tells like i just have such an emotional attachment to those albums so like the master puppet like i would really what i would like to do is i would really like to be able to play like you know master puppets like beginning to end like clean and solid that would be pretty (laughs) fantastic um which is really hard like from a physiologic standpoint, those musicians are amazing. If you've ever watched like, you know, um, Kurt Hammett play or like Lars play, they can like downstrum with such frequency and like, like their endurance is fucking amazing. They just like hit, 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 hit for like so long. Like I consider myself fairly athletic and like, I can play for like, geez, maybe like three and a half minutes of a song. And then I'm like all over the place. My coordination just goes down the toilet. Right. So those, those, those people are amazing. They're such good athletes, you know, but I'm definitely no musician. That'll be your next uh, training protocol to figure out is how to improve your, your finger picking endurance on the guitar. I mean, it's not hard. You just like got to do it a lot. And <laughs> yeah. not, like, I like force too much because I want to be strong and I don't want to be fluid and like, you know, so that's never going to happen for, it's really hard to be a rock climber that's trying to pull hard and be really coordinated with endurance with your hand, right? Those mm. are two different things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, right on, man. This is my go-to final question. What is something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? Oh man, I'm always grateful for my wife. Like I think more than anything and and my kids too, but my wife for sure, like you know, the, the glue behind my life is definitely that lady. So like, it's funny. She sent me a video this morning of a gal that's like on, cause it's easy to bitch and moan about like small things in your life. Right. Or like some sort of stress you're putting on yourself emotionally that you're assuming is how, ha- you know, like life is tr- tricky and hard for everyone. And a video from someone from America's got talent who had cancer just like killed it. Like this girl has like a 2% chance of living. And she like goes on America's Got Talent, just like crushes the stage with this song. And it's mm. like, man, I have nothing to bitch about. Like, you know, she always reminds me of like stuff like that, which I think is so cool. You know, it's like, makes me as teary eyed as I get. Like, but I think, uh, I think I would say her for oh, sure. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. 
That's a great note to leave people with. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. This was really fascinating. Gave me a lot to uh, to think about. Gave us all a lot of interesting things to, a lot of interesting rabbit holes to dive further down in the future. And um, I'd love to do it again one of these days. Yeah, man, that was fun for sure. I like um, the the long, I think the long podcasts are fun because it's more easygoing and lots of uh, distance to travel and more topics can be covered. Great. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Let me know when you come through. Let me know when you come through. Okay. Yeah. Thank sure. you. Yeah. That'd be really fun to connect in person. And, uh, I'm sure I'd learn a lot. You can try, you can do some BFR with me too. It's, I can, I can, we can make it less intense. Yes. Awesome. I'm scared of it. That'll be great. <laughs> All right. I'll be in touch soon. Really appreciate this and, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah. You're welcome. Me too. Cheers. Okay. Bye. Hey friends, before you go, I just wanted to say that if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow Tyler on Instagram at C4HP so you can stay up to date on the latest research and training recommendations from Tyler. He's pretty active over there and shares a lot of really great information in his posts. So be sure to find him on Instagram and be sure to follow at The Nugget Climbing while you're at it. If you are enjoying the show and feel like you are getting some value out of these episodes each week, I would love your support. You can look for the support the podcast link right there in your podcast app, and that'll take you to the website. There are a couple of options for one-time donations via Venmo or PayPal, and you can also find a link for Patreon as well. It's $5 per month to become a patron of the podcast, which is a great way to support the show, and you get access to about 20 bonus episodes that I've published so far. And I've got a new one coming this week with Ron Kauk that you won't want to miss. So be sure to check that out. Thank you again to all of you who support the show. I haven't said that in a while. I'm super grateful to have your support, and it means a lot. It really helps. Okay. Love you guys. Be safe and enjoy yourselves out there. Try hard. Take care of those finger pulleys. And we'll see you next time. Like we do it.